welcome to New Manager Media, Manage Right from the Start with Jennifer Takagi. I'm Jennifer, a former climber of the corporate and government ladders turned leadership development entrepreneur. I'm a leadership coach helping you transform your office from feeling like a prison cell into a playground where employees are energized, engaged, and eager to work. Stress is reduced. Productivity is increased. Communication is seamless because playgrounds are much more fun than cubicle cells. Leadership development might seem like hard work, but leadership done right helps you create the team of your dreams. Each week, I'll bring you an inspiring message to pave the way to your successful journey into a leadership role. Thank you for joining me today. Now let's get started. Hello, and welcome to New Manager Media, Manage Right from the Start. I'm so excited and honored today that I was able to track down and lasso Angel Rich. Angel and I met, a, it's right out a year ago, maybe the end of this month, 1st of October. And I, she spoke from the stage. I was completely captivated. And then, of course, I had to go stalk her on social media because that's what you do. And she wouldn't take any friend requests on the Facebook. So I snuck up to her. I don't even know if you remember this. I snuck up to you. Um, it went too long without a break and I had to have a break. So I squatted down next to you and said, I really want to be friends with you, but you're just, you have too many. I can't be friends with you. It won't let me. And I gave you my card. And as I was going to sneak away, you grab my arm and go, wait, I want to be friends with you too. So <laughs> we talked when there was an actual break and connected and you have such an amazing story. I can't even begin to do it justice, but I'm going to start by saying, hang in on this interview because April, uh, April, it's not April anymore. It's September. I'm so confused. <laughs> Angel, where has the time gone? It's all been corona Um, Angel was named by Forbes magazine as the next Steve Jobs. So I'm just captivated. I'm enamored. I'm stuttering all over myself because I'm like, oh my God, I'm so excitable. So I'm not going to butcher your story. I want to hear your story. How did you get to where you are? And what can you say to inspire us to do better, be better? Wow, what an introduction. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, I often don't even know where to begin uh, when people kind of start off asking me sort of so blanket like that. But I, I, I almost always sort of go back almost to uh, high school when I think that was the moment that my life could have really became different. Uh, I almost didn't go to college. I grew up in an entrepreneurial home and I was expected to be an entrepreneur. So my family never encouraged me to go to college, never expected me to go to college. In fact, I was dissuaded to go to college. And uh, finally, my 12th grade teacher made me apply to school, and I got accepted into Hampton University. It was the only school I applied to, and that was sort of the beginning of my life uh, changing, if you will. And while I was there, I spent a lot of time focusing on how I could be the best researcher that I could, because I knew I wanted to go into financial services, 
to better understand how to be able to help increase people's financial well-being. So it's it's from there, <laughs> I guess, you know, my senior year of college, uh, I walked into the library and there was a group of people waiting for me. And, you know, I've lost 100 pounds and I was this nerdy girl and I only had one boyfriend all four years. So I didn't really think anybody even knew who I was. And uh, this group of people said, we want you to lead us in a Goldman Sachs portfolio challenge. And I said, I don't know anything about the stock market and I've never done a portfolio challenge. And they said, oh, we're confident you can lead us. And I said, okay. Um, so I ended up reverse engineering the uh, stock market and coming up with an algorithm for the stock market. We did a positive 2% while the market did negative 2%. And I asked myself, who would ever figure this out? And I realized there needed to be some type of game where people could live out their financial life without the risk of them losing their money. And even though I had the idea for this game, um, I didn't quite have the, what I felt the background just yet to sort of step out there and start uh, my company or start this invention. So crazily, uh, fast forward six months later, I'm once again still in my senior year, but it's now spring, and I walk into the School of Business, and a group of people say, hey, we need you to do this prudential case competition. And I was like, uh, I've already won Goldman Sachs, I'm good, you know, I, I think I've been there, done that. And they were like, Angel, it is life insurance and it's a marketing competition. Um, my whole family sells life insurance, and my degree is in marketing. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> so they said, if this competition isn't for you, we don't know what you've been doing here in this last four years. <laughs> so it was kind of one of those challenging moments where I could have tucked my tail and ran away, or I could have stepped up to the plate and see if I really had um, what it took. And we ended up winning. We came up with the idea of selling life insurance and financial services to millennials, specifically Generation Y, online. Um, so both of those thought processes uh, were futuristic at the time. We actually ended up at Forbes magazine for this groundbreaking idea of marketing financial services online and targeting youth. Like who would ever think to target youth? And uh, Online? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So that was the beginning of my career. Um, I was able to pick any position that I wanted to at Prudential. Um, they were very gracious. I had already done about two years of research and knew I wanted to go into the global market research department. It's sort of this secret department that exists in financial services companies that help to motor the entire company. And it's usually not more than 10 or 20 people that are in this department and pretty much every piece of research um, that helps to power the company comes through this department. But it's very difficult to get into it. So I said, global market research. And I'm going to get it. Exactly. And um, it was an amazing learning experience. Um, I probably learned more in a week there than I did all four years um, at school because it was just so fast paced and so intense um, with, with, with the things that we did. And while I was there, I ended up creating the African-American Financial Experience Study. 
It is the first study ever conducted by a financial services company to analyze the financial behavior of Blacks. Um, it's the reason that Blacks are currently in life insurance commercials, as well as many other financial services commercials, and it has been distributed across the world. Um, additionally, um, in my last year, I made the company $6 billion, changing around problem resolution standards, um, because I figured out if you solve problems in two days instead of three days, you would make a lot of money. Um, and at the time, the company was doing it in six days. <laughs> so we needed to change some things. Um, they then gave me a Presidential Achieve Award. I uh, got a full ride to Wharton and about $30,000 after just making them about $6 billion at that point, uh, and, and also a full ride to Wharton. So at that point, I decided to go to Africa on a mission trip with my church. I requested $175,000 for this, and I was going to put everybody in uh, Mother Prue t-shirts, um, but my request is the, was declined. When I got there, I met a little boy in a Wharton t-shirt, and I realized no matter how smart he became, he probably would never have the opportunity to actually go to Wharton. And I decided to quit my job to create equal access to financial literacy everywhere. And that was sort of the beginning of, of me starting my company. And it has been um, a very interesting journey since. So I, I just have to stop you for half a second. Number one, so you can take a breath. And number two, so we can like digest all that you've already accomplished in your <laughs> short life since college. And I want to point out that when you are a leader, people know it. And people are attracted to you. And you may not even know that they're attracted to you. So you've been in school four years. Consider yourself a nerdy girl. And, and people are seeking you out. So when you have leadership skills, you need to build on them and embrace the opportunities. I, I just love that. Hey, yeah, I already won. Was it um, Sachs? Goldman? Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs, yeah. Um, you are, I already won that. I don't really need to do the Prudential one. So <laughs> let's not bother with this. You know, skip it. But you've been a leader a really long time. And, and it's always happened. And if you don't mind, back up just a little bit to a little girl, if you don't mind telling the story of your vision of creating financial opportunities, like as a little child, because that was Goosebumps story. Yes, I don't tell that story often, um, but I'll definitely uh, share it. Um, but it's true, it, a lot of people have a hard time um, believing or accepting it. Um, but when I was six years old, I received a vision from God. I was sitting on my great grandmother's back porch. Um, I remember it very vividly. And I was pretty much shown my entire life. And it was pretty much instructed to me that I would live my life helping others to reduce poverty. So I've always known that I was gonna go into financial literacy. I didn't necessarily know that I was going to be a financial technologist or um, any of these things, but I did see the path that I had to take in order to help free the world of this sort of financial bondage um, that we've been in for a couple of centuries now. And um, 
You know, it's almost crazy, Jennifer, with how much of that vision has come to pass. Even since the last time I said it to you, you know, there's a lot of things that has even transpired over this last year. And to be able to be blessed to sort of have the gift of seeing your life ahead of time when you're at such a young age and then being able to also have the uh i don't even know what you want to call it the 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 morality of my family to encourage me to walk in that vision um that basically my great grandmother would say to me it's already written what makes you think you have a choice whenever i would get frustrated she would go it's already written what makes you think you have a choice <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was never like this option of not following um, God's vision, you know? It was always like, yes, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, so it, it has truly helped me along my journey and where so many people are like, how is she able to do all these things and know these things to do? It really hasn't been my vision. It was a vision placed on me by God. And I think that people who struggle to hear that and believe it and understand it, it's just because they haven't listened. Like we've all been told and guided and we can call it what we want. It can be God, it can be universe, it can be mother earth, it can be anything completely, you know, mainstream or completely holistically out there. We are kind of where we're supposed to be, like wherever it is. And I was meant to go to that conference. I was meant to meet you. Um, and Angel, you have a book, which I love the fact that her name is Angel Rich and God spoke to her at six and her last name is Rich. And so <laughs> the, the, the continuity continues, girlfriend, but she <laughs> the history of the black dollar. And um, we kind of had a little conversation when we met about, you know, our experiences in life, mine, of course, being somewhat sheltered, but not as sheltered as others. And I got your book and I started reading it and I'm, I was just appalled. I was appalled by, by the history, by things happening. Um, a lot is happening in the world right now with you know, everything is coming to light, right? It's bubbling over. It's been boiling for years and now it's, you know, bubbling over the pot. And I, I struggle with, you know, I, not knowing how to be supportive, what to do to be supportive, what feels right to me. I remember years ago, a friend of mine was a brand spanking new Christian, shiny like a penny. She had never been to church. I was born on a Monday. My first time in church was the next Sunday. I never didn't know and she was all, you know, gung-ho excited. And she decided that she just had to go minister to people in prison. And I should too. Okay. <laughs> That's not my deal. That's not, I'm not doing that. So uh, in the last, yeah, I'm going to say month-ish, I've really been trying to find my voice on where I want to lead, who I want to influence, what you know, what I want to come from here. And I've had conversations with some of my friends and we're not coming from the same place. And the one thing I've learned, and you can chime in at any point, if someone's not willing to listen, you're wasting your breath. 
because they don't want to agree with you. They want to tell you how you're wrong or they don't want to hear it. One of the two. And um, a conversation came up recently. And this is something I don't typically talk about either uh, about the pulling down of the statues. Mm. And so I started looking into that a, a while back and my understanding is most of those were constructed in the forties and fifties as a result of the civil rights movement. Like let's, let's just show everybody we're going to, we're going to put all these monuments up and just remember your place, girlfriend, just remember your place. And all my friends say it's history. And I said, okay, so it's history. Let's take them down, put them all in one place. So people aren't forced to see it every single day. Like if they want to go learn that history, it's, it's a choice. And I've gotten a lot of pushback on that. And I said, okay, so here's my story. On April 19th, 1995 was Oklahoma city bombing. I'm not even sure if you're alive yet, little girl. And I called in sick and everybody that sat right around me was killed. I did have, God literally told me to stay home and take care of myself. And so I, I did, I fought it for a while, but I did. And I was pretty sick. So I still struggled with the decision though. And I got back a crumpled nameplate and some crumpled family photos. And that's it for my whole work area. And they moved us into temporary offices for five or six years. And then they moved us to the new federal building. Well, the new federal building has a lot of glass, a lot of glass. And there is a corner where two walls come together and it's floor to ceiling windows. And it overlooks the Oklahoma City bombing memorial. And uh, those of you who are listening to this, <laughs> Angel's mouth is like hanging open. Um, and that was the room for our training it was our room for our luncheons, you know, Thanksgiving luncheon, Christmas luncheon, Easter luncheon, you know, we, all the holidays. And, and we would have to go into that room. And somebody figured out pretty quickly that they needed to put floor to ceiling blinds and cover those windows so that every time you walked in, and the memorial's gorgeous, don't get me wrong, it is beautiful. If you've never been to Oklahoma City, you've never seen the memorial, you need to come, you need to see it. It is just amazing what they created there. But imagine that you're, you were there the day and were injured in the bombing, or like me, you weren't there that day, but if you had been, you would have been killed. And you have to like have it slap you in the face every single day. Then the building is built, it's two separate buildings with a glass walkway in between. You're walking across glass. What were people injured with? Flying glass, all cut up, right? So I, I shared that story this weekend when one of my friends said, well, you know, those monuments and statues should not be pulled down. It's history. I said, well, let me just tell you, and I kind of lost it a little bit. I tried to hold it together, but I kind of lost it a little bit. I was like, how do you think I felt every single day being the supervisor? with my people having emotional breakdowns pretty consistently until, you know, you're just re-traumatized to the point that you can deal with it. 
how do you think I felt? Because I didn't get to fall apart, right? Because as leaders, we have to hold it together. So I, I tell that story, which I really wasn't planning on telling that story, but you know, that's how these interviews go. When you have something thrown in your face every single day and you heard from your mom, your grandma, your great grandma, their histories, and then you drive down the street and it's slapped in your face, it's the same thing. Jennifer, that is one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard. And I'm almost a little bit speechless. <laughs> uh, I'm like almost fighting back tears because hmm, I'm really almost fighting back tears because what you just did was so profound on so many levels. Um, you actually just, I'm really crying. <laughs> <laughs> It's a lot. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the only analogy I can come up with to well, get the, the people to see you. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, hold on. Let me get myself together. Um, I shed a tear, Jennifer. What made me shed a tear just now is because we fight so hard just to get people to even understand what you just so easily articulated so easily articulated from an experience that you personally had involving the oklahoma city bombing and like you just said that's one incident we've been dealing with this for 400 years i call it the invisible fits you know where you say all oh, those statues don't matter but every time somebody got close to this area or walked in some place they wasn't supposed to go or was in a sundown town longer than they were supposed to be or even i myself get extremely nervous when i'm on country roads like my friends that's from the country make fun of me because i'm from the city so if, <laughs> if it's more than two cutaway roads and we can't get in i no longer see street lights i'm like hold up y'all where, where we at now where are we at <laughs> Like let's let's get it let's get it together. <laughs> so, and that's right now in 2020. So a few years ago, I had a temporary boss for six months who was black, and he kept wanting to come to the lake house with me and my husband because my husband is like the king of being a host and making people feel welcome. So finally, we took a road trip and went to the lake house, and there were a lot of back roads, and he was out of cigarettes. I can't remember. I think I had quit smoking by then, but he needed cigarettes. So we stop at this little total dive bait shop convenience store. And he looked at me and his eyes got big and he said, will I be safe to walk in there or do you need to go buy my cigarettes for me? I said, you'll be safe because it's only the two of us. There's not even anybody in the store. It'll be fine. And this was eight years ago. See, in a moment like that, our natural instinct, and he must have really trusted you for real. Because in my mind, and every black person watching this, we're going, do not get out the car. <laughs> so, <laughs> and this is a black girl 
my mother going into the store, coming out running, running to get into the car, driving, screaming prayers that she'd make it onto the highway. And like, we're like, what's going on? And these three, like, um, almost like tractor trailer-ish trucks is chasing my mother behind us. And they turn on these lights, all three of this. I will never forget this. They turn on these lights, all three at the same time. And they have Confederate flags in the back. And they are chasing us. Now, my mother happens to be a, pa- a part-time NASCAR driver. So, so she, she was out of there. But that was one of my, that is what I think about when I think about the South, because it was one of my, I think we were in Mississippi. And it was one of my first times being in the Deep South. I remember the gas being real cheap. And I remember that the gas was 45 cent. And I remember that. And that is my, that is my memory, you know? And, um, and so these are things that, that I could tell you stories as an adult. As an adult, I had a situation where my father, uh, my father is the only black person in his building in Miami. My father lives in North Beach, Miami. He lives in the penthouse. And I didn't know that my father was the only black person in his building. And so I, me and my friend, we come, you know, we late partying. It's Miami. We show up 2 a.m. in the morning. And it just happens to be these police outside that was dealing with some drunk cab driver. Well. We pull up, they're no longer interested in the cab driver. They now want to focus their attention on us. So they start asking me for my license and registration. I'm just trying to get the valet to open up the door so that I can go in and park the car. Like, I'm a, I'm a resident here. Long story short. Here. Yeah, long story short, the police starts insisting that I'm lost. I say, no, sir, I'm not lost. This is the building. This is, this is the building. And he said, ma'am, there is a hotel to the left and a hotel to the right. I believe you're mistaken and you're supposed to be at one of those. I said, no, my father lives in the penthouse. I'm pretty sure I know where I'm at. Once again, I had no clue the level of building this was or the fact that my father was the only black person in it. So for me to say that my father was in the penthouse, this man felt like I had truly lost my mind. So it then escalated into a whole situation that I'm not even going to keep going into the details because it got really raw. And I ended up just breaking down crime. And my best friend who's from Georgia was with me. And I was like, and I'm, you know, I'm an activist and all that. I was like, I don't, and this was two years ago. I was like, I don't know why I'm crying like this. And she was like, because reality just smacked you in the face. And that was a very real moment for me because even after all of the activism work that I've done, even after all of these movements and all of this Black Lives Matter stuff, and even after the focus on the Miami-Dade police, to know that those actions are still happening to a light-skinned, pretty female in North Beach, I can't imagine what's happening across the road in Little Haiti. You know, so it is a it is a very real experience. Um, with me being named the next Steve Jobs, oftentimes people just want me to shut up, build technology, and focus on making money, and that being the example to the world. 
Well, I decided very on, and this is my first time actually ever saying this publicly. I decided very early on in college, in sophomore year of college, I made the decision not to focus on money because my great grandparents were some of the rich black people in the country. I grew up in a very odd world where in our home, because we were from, from the first black neighborhood in the country, we, um, we had a nice home inside, but on the outside, DC was changing. So my sister and I were the only people in our school that was not on welfare. And my mother used to buy uh, shoes for the kids in the neighborhood. So I grew up in a very sort of mixed environment. So I understood that money is not the end all be all. It is the mindset. It is the mindset that people have to actually change in order to uplift them out of poverty. So for me to just go off and become, which I do plan to become a billionaire, but I didn't want to do it in just the traditional straight path of just purely focusing on myself and focusing on the money. I believe that if I started young enough that I could bring the world along with me, that I could bring our communities along with me and take the time to be able to educate people and help share resources with them along the way so that when I do reach that finish line and when I do become a billionaire, there's a couple of other billionaires that are there with me there are other millionaires that are with, there with me, and there has been a movement propelled where I'm now not 60, 70 years old and trying to get people to listen to me. I've already sort of cultivated that environment where the entire mindset of the culture has changed. And I think sort of having a, a, a intention for that collective impact is more important for us as an entire country. And exactly what you just alluded to with the Oklahoma City bombings, because that is exactly how we feel every time we see one of those statues. And then not to mention that our statues that actually celebrate us get dismissed and hidden. Many people don't know that Freedman's Bank, the first black bank, sits right next to the treasury. You just right on, walk right on past it. You don't even know. Many people don't even know that's part of the reason that Lincoln got assassinated because he was helping the black bank in Frederick Douglass. So it's like so many parts of our history that has just been um, neglected from the American history pages. And that is why I get so passionate every time I talk about this book, because I really do believe it should be mandated in every American history class across the country. I totally agree. And it's, it's shocking, appalling and an important book to pick up and read. So with your vision, with your intention, with your goal, and the path that's been written for you according to your grandma, what is your business now? What are you doing to fulfill this? Tell us about your Get Wealthy Life, about your app, about, Tell us that. What's the next step that you have rolling so quickly down the, down the road? Yes, yeah, so I'm excited that we released the Wealthy Life textbook earlier this year, um, just in time for COVID. So <laughs> <laughs> COVID special edition. Um, <laughs> so uh, we have the print as well as the ebook version. We've been using it for years, but we never made it available to the public before. 
Um, but with so many people focused on virtual learning, it was really amazing timing um, for us to be able to do that. Um, we also relaunched Credit Stacker. It is now available as a paid app. Um, before it was free, and while we were doing an amazing service to the world, um, we need to be able to make a little bit of coin off of it so we can help more people. So uh, we relaunched the way it. that flows, right? Exactly, exactly. So you know, the testing and the testing is over. It's successful, <laughs> uberly successful. So it is now available for a nine ninety nine, and uh, we also have that available for schools as well for them to be able to adopt on a per user basis. But what I'm really excited to announce is a new product that we've built um, called Credit Rich. And Credit Rich uh, helps people round up their spare change to intelligently pay their bills to easily increase their credit score. Uh, so we're excited that we have a new partnership with Experian. I saw um, that today. I saw that. Don't make me start crying again, Jennifer. <laughs> I didn't know I had that effect on people, but I'll take it. <laughs> and you know, um, that was something that was truly just a ballsy vision of mine. I was like, you know, I was like, I want to build something that is just truly undeniable that is going to make so much money that everybody in the world wants to buy it and I can still leverage the credit stacker algorithm. So that was sort of like my thought process, like how can I help increase people's credit score using this algorithm, but make the most insane amount of money possible? And we came up with Credit Rich. And I said, hey, I'm going to shoot for the moon on this one. What is like the best credit company that I could possibly get to partner with? So I thought of the three credit bureaus. And then I was like, what's number one? Experian. So we reached out and Lord and behold, they actually liked our product. So it's been, I've been keeping this under wraps for months. It's, I've been dropping a little bit of like, uh, uh, but today I did the official announcement because today I woke up to the contract and, um, exp uh, you know, what's actually kind of really surreal about Experian is I kind of said to them, I think I'm the first black person to partner with you all. And they said, Angel, what you're doing is amazing, not just for a black person, but for someone, period. And so, um, so they're looking to frame the story about just how innovative I'm being, period. Not even, not even a diversity play or anything like that, but just they are truly enamored about how we are about to disrupt the credit industry, how we have invented some credit solutions in partnership with them that they weren't even thinking about, all the way up to the president is on board and a fan of ours. And it's been really amazing to kind of see behind the scenes of the credit industry, particularly with Experian, where they really do want to put the power back into the consumer's hand and want to educate um, people on credit. So it's making for an amazing partnership. And I, I cannot wait um, to see what the next couple of months are going to unfold um, as we start to roll out our marketing promotions and commercials and different things like that that are going to start to come soon and i can't stop smiling i slept so hard last night so they told me that it was going to come but to wake up to it i slept so hard last night <laughs> so to anybody that is on their entrepreneurial journey 
just keep going. There is light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> there is light at the end of the tunnel. So to make all this happen, you have a team. Yeah. You're having to lead people. You're having to lead a team. I know we've been we've been talking for a while, and I totally appreciate every moment because you're just an amazingly busy woman. If I were a new manager and I'm just stepping into my new leadership role, what are one, possibly two things you would say to help me maintain my sanity and, you know, keep leading well? You know, something that I think that we do, maybe other people do it too, but I think we, we, we take pride in, let me say it like that. Um, we like to really actually get to know our employees. So. Uh -huh. Whenever we onboard somebody, I make everybody do, well, first of all, I make everybody do icebreakers. So we do like two lives and one truth. I want to actually get to know your personality before, it's kind of a sandwich approach. I want to actually get to know your personality before we start to go into your skill set. So just like, what are some cool things about you, you know? Um, then we dive into skill set from a professional and personal perspective. I think a lot of times people focus on the professional skills, but we actually take the time to go around and ask everybody, why would somebody want to work with you? What is special about you? What makes you great on a team? Are you a team leader? Are you the motivator? Are you the devil's advocate that's going to poke holes and everything? Everything could be great, but just let us know what your strength is so that when it comes time to pick apart something, we point to the devil's advocate. If it's time for peace, we point to you. And we literally almost kind of assign people these roles. So if there starts to be too much groupthink, somebody pops up and say, hey, everybody's agreeing with each other too much. Or if there's too much disorder, we have, <laughs> we even give them a gavel sometimes. It's like, hey, you know, come to order. And everybody has to respect what that person's role is, you know? Um, and I think that that works really well. And then thirdly, we sort of combine this with metrics where we make them do an IDP and they have to actually put together an individual development plan. And this is a combination of what their job description is, what the goals that we have for them, as well as what their personal goals are. So as they're scaling and as they're achieving things, it's not really that you failed the company, you failed yourself. Like you said that you wanted to get 20 marketing presentations done. You said that you wanted to master Excel and PowerPoint. This is for your future. You could leave wealthy life next year. Don't make me no difference. But did you get that skill set? So we kind of frame it up like that and almost take like a project approach to it where we're looking, and I've done that since the very beginning. I was actually in the Washington Post for it because we were one of the first startups to start taking college students and bringing them into the company because it was always about um, professional and personal development to me, never about trying to like lock somebody in for four or five years at a time. And it actually makes, which is, I guess my second piece of advice, it actually makes for good um, innovation when you do have kind of um, people floating in and out from a project oriented perspective they're not getting burnt out or stalemated and you're able to keep fresh ideas flowing in. I love that. And, and sometimes we try to pigeonhole people and keep them there. And sometimes if people push back on an idea, we think they're not being a team player when actually they're trying to save us from ourselves. 
Yeah, and I would also yeah. say offering amazing employee benefits. I just did a um, a presentation on this um, to Guardian the other day, so the thought kind of just came to mind. One of the reasons we created Credit Rich is because while I was working at former companies, I saw people starting up, which is one of the areas of research I worked on, was like employee benefits and benefits and beyond, if anybody is familiar with that study. Um, and people were starting to offer dental assistance and roadside assistance and all type of other just discount programs and gas reward cards. The number one thing that kills people is stress. The number one thing that stresses people out is money and finances. The number one problem that people have with finances is credit. So if you simply help your employees with some type of credit tool, uh, research shows per experience that they are 46 months likely to stay with you longer. So by you onboarding a product like Credit Rich, where you pay us a dollar a month on behalf of the employee, you're able to offer it to the employee for free, you just increase your employee retention without even doing anything. And the product eventually pays for itself because the employee stays with you longer, they're happier and they're more productive. So um, that's also a great piece of advice and message that we're looking to get out to employees as well, employers. So if somebody wants to reach out to your company, if they want to get credit risk, do you have a website? How, how, how are we going to track you down? Because you know, I'm a good stalker, but not everybody is. So let's make it easy. <laughs> Absolutely. Very simple email address, info at getwealthylife.com. Again, that is info at getwealthylife.com. I am very proud to say that we're currently building a website in partnership with Experian. Of course you are. Of course you are. So you guys got to stay tuned for that. Um, but in the meantime, you can email us and that will be out soon. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, so if you have any updates, reach out and we'll just do an update. Okay. Podcast. Angel, I, I'm just so in awe of you and your vision and all that you do. And I think, oh, crap, I need to run faster. I am so far behind you. Jennifer, I encourage you to take that story and I'm happy to officially recommend you. And I would love for you to do a TED talk on it because I think the message that you just gave is so powerful. And if it can get into the ears of people across the country and across the world, I don't know how you can't hear what you just said. I mean, <laughs> so, it was so plainly articulated. Um, I'm not going to start crying again. So I would love, I would love to recommend, you know, when you're ready in your time to recommend you to do a TED Talk, um, as well as have you involved, they would kill me if I didn't mention this, have you involved in a new initiative that we're doing in partnership with MIT called Hack Racism. Uh, Hack Racism is a national competition that we are doing across the country with HBCUs as well as PWIs. Uh, JP Morgan Chase is one of our uh, major sponsors. We have April Ryan from CNN as a guest judge, as well as the founder of Priceline, uh, Jeff Hoffman, and uh, Sekou, who, uh, Sekou Conline, who leads Advancing Black Pathways for J.P. Morgan Chase, and Dr. Maya Rockymore, who is Elijah Cummings' wife uh, and a former head of the DBC. 
Um, those are just a few of the guest um, speakers and judges that we'll have. This is a very uh, historic initiative that we're doing to attack racism from a technology and solution-oriented perspective. It will be ongoing and it will lead into various different policy changes that we're looking to make. So I'll send you additional information on that. Um, for anybody looking to connect, you can either email me, um, that's under my Black Tech Matters brand. You can learn more about it at blacktechmatters.co, um, as well as feel free to email uh, MIT directly, if you like, at hackracism at mit.edu. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and thank you for your time. I'm Jennifer Takagi with New Manager Media, and I look forward to connecting with you soon. Thank you for joining today. Please hop on over to iTunes to leave us a review and share our channel with your friends and family. Head over to TakagiConsulting.com gift for a great free gift. Also, you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and TakagiConsulting.com. We would love to hear from you. And may your days be filled with more success than you ever dreamed possible.